it's good to see everybody this morning. You might be asking, first off, who's this guy preaching? Because I haven't preached in the last two weeks. And uh, Pastor Adam, but really, the, the, star, of the star of the morning, uh, not a little star, little star, the big star is always Jesus, little star, is my wife is back. Yeah, praise the Lord, Stephanie's here. It's been three months. Uh, I do want to make one more announcement before I start. Um, there's these little prayer request cards in the back of your seats in some of them, and there's also a stack on the uh, Welcome Center. If you have a prayer request that you want prayed for this week, please fill it out and put it in the basket on the Welcome Center. Um, this whole week is prayer week, so 6.30 to 8.30 each morning, the sanctuary is open, and um, there will be all these prayer cards will be all over the platform up here, and you can take some time and pull some, pull some cards and sit down and pray for the concerns of the church. Um, it, the church will also be open from noon to one each day, Monday through Friday. And then we're having a special evening one on Monday and Thursday. Did I get that right? I got to look in the bulletin. Oh, somebody help me here. Oh, I can't find it. Monday and Thursday, Monday and Thursday, I was at Monday and Thursday from 6.30 to 7.30 in the evening. So I, I really encourage you to find one of those times and come into the sanctuary and spend some time in prayer, spend some time in prayer. And, and lastly, too, uh, tonight is Pavilion Praise. So if you want to come back at five o'clock, we meet out underneath the pavilion and we set up the lawn chairs and we have a little singing. We go back through scripture and we have some time of sharing out there. So that's tonight at five o'clock. It's been great to go through um, this month. Our focus has been, this month, our focus has been worship, authentic worship. And the whole idea of this is we've been continuing to look at how Jesus discipled his disciples. How did, he says, make disciples. Well, how did Jesus make disciples? What were the things that he taught his disciples? And so we've been walking through each month a different focus. And this month has been authentic, authentic worship. And uh, I've titled this one, Not Where, But Whom and How. And we're going to John chapter 4 today, 4 through 34, to look at authentic worship. I've been thankful that we started off this month. I started in Genesis 4, in Genesis 4, and we looked at Cain and, and Abel and, and them bringing themselves and their offering to God. And we, we realize that, wait, if we have unconfessed sin, it will hinder our worship. And then uh, Elder Scott Kingston, Kingston did Matthew chapter 4, and he went to the temptations of Christ, and he pointed out in his sermon that if there's idolatry in our lives, because it, it says worship God and him only, if there's anything that has crept in and become the, uh, the God of our lives, we will not be able to worship. We'll be worshiping that idol, of course. And then last Sunday, Aaron uh, did the message, and he, and he talked about the sacrifice of worship. And one of the passages he touched on was John chapter 4, along with others, but I want to look at John chapter 4 this morning. And it's a beautiful passage of Scripture. It's, it's just, you unfold this narrative as you go along. So I'm just going to read through it, and I'm going to comment on the way if you have your if you have your bulletin, you'll be able to fill things in as I go. 
But in John chapter four, starting at verse four, it says, now he, meaning Jesus, had to go through Samaria. You stop right there. He had to go through Samaria. Jews in that day, if they were a respectable Jew, would not go through Samaria. They would actually bypass Samaria, go around that region, because in that region, there was populated by people who were not truly Jews. That's what they felt like. They were not truly Jews. They were mixed kind of thing. And so not to get unclean so that they couldn't go into the, worship, into the temple for worship, they would bypass Samaria to get from north to south or south to north. But it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. That gives you the idea that there's going to be a divine appointment. There's going to be a reason, a specific reason why Jesus had to go through Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired and he, from, from as he was on a journey, and he sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There's a bunch of stuff here. First off, he brings up Jacob. That takes us all the way back to Genesis. And Jacob is the father of the 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the, the leaders of the tri 12 tribes of Israel. And then Jacob had a favored son, and his name is Joseph. And it was Joseph, the coat of many colors that are there. Whole bunch of history there. And then it says it's about the sixth hour. They would count from 6 a.m. in the morning. Six hours would take you where? To noon, to midday. Notice also here something about Jesus, that he is tired. The second thing we're going to see is that he's thirsty, and the third thing that we're going to see, we're going to infer, is that he was hungry because his disciples went to get food. Those three things about Jesus right there. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So the first thing Jesus does in this conversation with this interaction with the Samaritan woman is he asks a question. He asks a question. And that's a great way to start off conversations, especially with somebody you don't know. Can you help me? Can you help me? That's a great way to start off a conversation, a great way to engage with someone else. Can you help me? I need your help. Can you help me? That's basically what Jesus is doing here with this woman. How does the woman respond? In verse 9, the Samaritan woman said, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Obviously. I don't think this was new information for Jesus. <laughs> I, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So she's, she's saying, wait a minute, something's not right here, or something's different here. For this Jewish man to ask me for the favor of a drink, because in literally, we don't use the same dishes. Jews and Samaritans do not use the same dishes. So if I get a drink for this Jewish man and he drinks it out of the jar that I have, he will become unclean. And if he becomes unclean, then what can he not do? He cannot go into the temple for worship. So she's, she's intrigued by a Jewish man asking her for a drink because she knows that if he takes a drink from that jar, that, that he's not going to be able to go in for worship. So it goes on from there. Jesus answered, 
if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now here, Jesus says a second thing. He, he, first off, he says, can you give me a drink? Can you help me? Secondly, he says, wait a minute. He says another provocative thing. She wasn't expecting this. If you just knew who I was. Actually, if you knew who I was, you would turn, this, would, this conversation would com- turn completely around. I wouldn't be asking you for a drink. No, if you knew who I was, you would be turning around and asking me for a drink. If you knew who I was. The gift of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you only knew. Now, it's noticed here that Jesus does not give her the answer yet. He does back in verse 25 and 26, but at this point in time, he does not give her the answer. He just lets it go. Verse 11, verse 11, she comes back with, sir, what the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? And then she doesn't even allow him to answer. She goes right into the next question. Are you greater than our father, Jacob? who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as he did also his sons and his flocks and his herds. So she asked more questions of Jesus, and Jesus at this point could have answered, actually, yes. If you're asking if I'm greater than the father, your father Jacob, <laughs> yeah, I am. Actually, I created him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw his every move. Yeah. I, I, we actually direct, you know, he could have said all that. He doesn't say that, but she's, she's intrigued by what Jesus is saying here. She's caught up into it. So we go to the next one, verse 13. The woman said to him, or verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And now we're on the other side of this story. So we realize that Jesus is talking about something spiritual here. He's talking about something spiritual. She's, and the woman is stuck on the physical. She's stuck on the, like, wait, wait, how can you get the water if you don't have a jar? And is the wells really deep and all this kind of stuff? And Jesus comes back with this statement, another provocative statement to her to say, hey, wait, if I give you water, you will never thirst again. Jesus is talking on the spiritual, but the woman is stuck on the physical because verse 15 says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I don't, I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's stuck on the physical, but Jesus is talking about the spiritual. Now, I want you to remember that because you're going to see this one more time in this passage where Jesus is going to be talking about the spiritual but there's another group that's stuck on the physical, stuck on the physical. So Jesus says to her, verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. Go call your husband and come back. So Jesus uh, responds with another request or a command to her. And she's at a pivotal point right now. What's she going to say? What is she going to say? And so she says, I have no husband, she replied. And before she can say anything else, Jesus jumps in and he said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. 
The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now, there's a lot that we uh, don't know here. The, first off, we know that the woman told the truth. We know, we know that because Jesus said, you have told the truth. We don't know how she said, I have no husband. We don't know the tone. Did, she could have. She could have, when Jesus asked that question, of, go, go get your husband, bring him back. She could have maybe dropped her head, maybe be a little, I, I have no husband. You know, a little guilty about it. She could have had that posture, maybe. Or she could have, understanding that the women came to the well in the morning to get the water. This woman was coming when? Midday, noon. Who comes to the well at midday or noon? The men. The men come at that time. She could have said, gave her kind of the eye, I have no husband. Either way, either way, Jesus responds this way to her, and, and she answers truthfully to her. True, he, she responds truthfully to him. And then the next statement is, Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Now, I want to point something out here. Remember, at the start of the passage, Jesus was tired, Jesus was thirsty, and he was hungry. That, show, that shows the humanity of Christ. That shows the humanity of Christ. Now, when we get to this point, when she says, I can see that you're a prophet, when Jesus tells her the information of her life that, he would, that she would think he would not know normally, he, she turns around and says, you're a prophet. At this point, you see the divinity of Christ. You see, Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man. And this is a beautiful passage of scripture to show both of those right side by side. He was hungry, he was thirsty, he was tired like us. At the same time, here he is telling this woman everything about her life as a prophet. She goes on, our fathers worshiped on this mountain but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And what the woman does here, she, she, I don't think she much, so much turns the conversation away from herself because I, it's already playing in her mind, wait a minute, this is a Jewish man, and if he drinks from my jar, then he's going to become unclean, and he's not going to be able to worship when he gets back to Jerusalem. So I think this is in the back of her mind saying, but wait a minute, you Jews say you worship in Jerusalem. We say we worship on this mountain. But here's what she does. Worship comes up as an issue of where. Where do we worship? Where do we worship? And this is a major point. When we limit worship to a where, we tend to tie it to space and time. When we limit worship to a where, a where, we limit it many times to space and time. And our language gives away to compartmentalizing worship. Compartmentalizing worship. So our language gives it away. When you, somebody says, oh man, we had really good worship this morning. I'll ask, what do you mean by that? 
And most likely what they mean is the singing was really good. I was like, yeah, the singing was really good. But what about the preaching? And what about the giving of tithes and offerings? And what about the fellowship with the saints? And what about all that? Isn't that worship too? And, and usually people will go, yeah, yeah, pastor. We know, we know, we know. But the worship was really good. This thing, when we compart, our language compartmentalizes it. There was a song uh, out lately um, that said, get your worship, I'm going to get my worship on. I'm like, what? Yeah, we, we compartmentalize down to just one element, maybe of the service. And, and when we do that, we limit what worship is. Now, I put up there, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. And this is one that you should have marked in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Listen to these words. These are really important words in relationship to worship. It says, don't you know that you yourselves, so he says it double, you yourselves are God's temple. You are God's temple. You yourself. Not this building, not this place, not this space and time. No, you yourselves are God's temple and and that God's spirit lives in you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, what's he talking about there? Is he talking about a building? No. He's talking about you. God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred. You are sacred in God's sight and you are that temple. So we have to really make sure that we do not limit worship to a song or to a place. Because when you leave this building, worship leaves. It does. It goes all over Washera County and everywhere, wherever you go. Worship leaves the building and goes wherever you go. Everywhere that you go. So he's not done talking to her. Jesus moves from the where to the whom and the how. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. That's a really important statement because he just made a prophecy. He just made a declarative statement to her that a time is coming when you, that you is plural. It's like you all, you all. And so she's included in it. But what the you all in this context is her as a Samaritan and the Samaritans that would be with her, you all will worship. Wait a minute here. He's making a prophecy. He's making a statement, a definitive statement, a declarative statement that this woman is going to worship him as the Messiah. We'll see that come true. Verse 22, you Samaritans, Jesus still speaking, worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. We stop right there. Salvation is from the Jews. We worship the salvation that has come from the Jews. What is the salvation that has come from the Jews? And that's Jesus. Our message is Jesus. He's the seed of the woman. 
Eve that crushes the seed of the serpent. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is of the royal line of King David. He is the Emmanuel, God with us. This is the one that we worship. It's not a where, it's a whom. And now he's going to get to how when he says, and yet a time is coming. He loves to say that phrase and has now come when the true worshipers will worship. Again, declare it up. This is how they will respond. They will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are, uh, they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. We worship not only the salvation that comes from the Jews, but we worship the Father, and we learn something about the Father here. He's a seeking God. He is seeking out his worshipers. He's seeking out his children. He's seeking out his sheep that will worship him this way. True worshipers and his worshipers will worship him this way and must worship him this way in spirit and in truth. So the answer to this prophecy, let me hit that first. If you jump ahead to verse 42, it says, they said to the woman, so the whole group came out, the town came out. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know this man really is the savior of the world. Yeah, that prophecy came true. What he said that they would worship him, they did worship him. But let's look at these two sides of this. Our worship is tied to our spirit. Our worship is tied to our spirit. That's, that's something inner within us. That's uh, subjective. That's personal. There's a personal worship that comes out of you. And we see that God is spirit. So because God is spirit, our spirit is tied to him as spirit. And each individually of us worship him because we are connected to him because he is spirit. That's inner. And then the second part, our worship is tied to truth. Truth is outside of ourselves. Truth is objective. Truth, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he's, he's saying the, peop, the way that we worship is we worship from the inside out, but we also worship grasping what has been done, the truth that has been done, the, the word of God that has been given to us, that all draws in what we call true worshipers. And then to finish out this little portion, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And, and Jesus could have said, yep, 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 yep that's going to happen. That he will definitely do that. But then he turns, and here's the big reveal. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. The big reveal. And he could have said that all the way back in verse 10. But he waits until he gets all the way to verse 26 when he allows her and he says to the Samaritan woman, yeah, you just named the Messiah and the Christ. Yep, I'm him. I'm him. I'm that one. And I'm here. And I'm standing right in front of you. Okay. Here come, now I want to go into the disciples because what are we doing? We're talking about making disciples, right? And so we got to see how the disciples react in this scenario. 
So we bring them in in verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, uh, but no one asked. So here's the questions in their minds, but no one verbally said this. What do you want? And why are you talking with her? So this kind of though gives you an idea of where the disciples are at because they would have said to the woman, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And they would have said to Jesus, why are you talking to her? Why are you talking to her? What are you you doing talking to her? What do you want? So you kind of get a gist of, of the disposition of the disciples by the questions that are rolling around in their heads. Verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out from the town and made their way toward him. This is wonderful. She left her water jar. The reason that she came to the well, if it was just to get water, or if it was because there were other companions there, whatever the reason, she left her water jar. She found something more important than her water jar. And she left the water jar. She went back into town and said something. She made a proclamation to others saying, I have found something more important than my water jar. And then she says, come and see a man who, so she gives an invitation. An invitation is extended to others to come with me and see this thing that I have found that is more important than my water jar. Now that's the response of a convert. That's the response of someone coming to faith in Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ opens your eyes, opens your heart, you understand and realize who he is, that he is your savior. What are you to do? You're to leave your water jar. You leave your life of sin. You leave the way that you were living before. You just leave it because you found something better, more important. And what does a convert do? A convert goes back and says to others, there's a proclamation. They have a message now on their heart. And what is that message that that convert has? An invitation to others to say, come and see. Come and see what I have found. That's the response of a true convert. When someone's eyes are opened and they see Jesus as their savior, they're going to leave their life of sin. They're going to leave their water jar. They're going to go back into the world and they're going to have something to say. And what are they going to say? Come see Jesus. He's better than any water jar that you got. Any water jar that you have. Verse, the next verse. I'm not moving. I'm stuck. Somebody will have to advance it. Verse 31, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. Rabbi, eat something. Now, if you're, if you're handy with this, you can turn your Bible back to Matthew chapter 4, and you can kind of flop back and forth. If we go back to Matthew chapter 4, the temptations of Jesus that Scott Kingston talked about a couple weeks ago. I want you to see the similarities here. Because the disciples just said uh, to Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. If you go to the first temptation, what was the first temptation? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, 
It says, the tempter came to him, Jesus, and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Says the same thing. Eat something, Jesus. You've been out there 40 days. Eat something. Turn these stones into bread. Okay, if you flip back over again, Jesus responds to the disciples after they said, eat something. Verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And now we see it again. Jesus is talking what? Spiritual. His disciples are stuck on the physical, on the physical. If we go back over to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus answered Satan. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See how those two are very, very similar and close together in their responses? Okay, now we go back to our passage again. Verse 33, then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? See, they're still thinking about the physical. If Jesus is not hungry, then the only way that he could not be hungry is someone else must have stopped in when we weren't here and gave him some food. They're thinking physical. They're not thinking spiritual. If we go back to the temptations of Christ, we get down to verse 8 of chapter 4 of Matthew. It says, again, the devil took him up on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And all this I will give you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. See what Satan is saying, there must be another, there's another way, Jesus. There's another way for you get to get all the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. But if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything. There's another way. You don't have to go to the cross, Jesus. You don't have to suffer the wrath of God, Jesus. You don't have to do any of that, Jesus. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. I'll give you everything. There's another way. There's another way. Jesus responds to Satan in there when he says those words. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There is no other way. There is no other way to heaven but through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one way. There are not other ways. And then if we flip back to our passage again, chapter 4, and we get to the last part here, it says, verse 33, then it's this, verse 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Again, he's speaking spiritual. If you flip back to the, the temptations and you go to the middle one, Jesus said, the devil took him to the holy city, stood him on the highest point of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift up his hands and, and you will not strike your foot against a stone. So what Satan is saying to Jesus at that moment in time, yeah, take matters into your own hands. You, you write the script, Jesus. You, you, you write the play. You, you, you make the next move. Just jump off. Show him, show him. Just put on a little display here. And that's when Jesus says, Jesus answered and said, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Basically, Jesus saying, wait a minute, no, no, he's the writer. I'm, I'm fulfilling his will. I'm not the one to write the play. I'm fulfilling the will of God. And we go back to our passage of scripture when he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's why I'm here. And I, I put down on here another passage of scripture that you should have marked in your Bible. 
is Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Aaron mentioned this last week. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your very life, your very obedience to him. Verse 2, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. Stop right there. You leave your water jar. You leave your water jar. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Not what your will is. Not what you want. But what God wants. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, almost done here. Let me try to, I'm, I'm going to tie these two together again. The dangers of false worship. Danger number one is it, it is something to consume like the bread. Just eat something, Jesus. We can fall into false worship when we look at worship as something to consume like the bread. So I go to this church or I go to this place because they have really good worship. And you're, you're walking through the doors of the church consuming something. When we think along those lines that it's all about me getting something out of it, consuming it, it's very easy to fall into false worship. It's very easy to go from place to place to place to place trying to find whatever you're trying to consume because it's your flavor. It's like fast food restaurants. And you're going in there to consume something. And you're picking it because it's that. We get into false worship if we're doing it just to consume something. We get into false worship when it's something that is manufactured, like the jump. Jesus, just jump off this temple. Just jump off, because when you do that, the angels will catch you, and, and it'll be a big show and everything, and it's manufactured. Jesus just manufactures. False worship is like that. When we think we can manufacture it, if we do this, this, and this, it'll be a great worship service. If we, if we just have a really great worship band, if we just have a drummer, I always used to say, if we used to have a bass player, you always have to have a bass player. You know, if you got a bass player, you, uh, things are happening, okay? It, we think we can manufacture. We think that if we do a fast song at the start and a slow song in the middle, and then we have a really reflective song, and then we have some stuff going on in the background and, and all that kind of stuff, and we, get, we feel the movement kind of thing. If we think if we can manufacture something, beware. Because you're going into the area of false worship. And the third one, danger of false worship, is it is anything sincere. It's anything since anything sincere, like the gods. When Satan says to G Jesus, just down, bow down and worship me. Just bow down and worship me. And that's when Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. There's only one that you worship, and it's the Lord God. And so when, when, we, when we make the bar anything sincere, I was, so I was in my very first church, and it's actually after I was gone from that very first church, we had an opportunity to go back to that church. It was like 10, 12 years later and to visit on a Sunday. And uh, as we were sitting there in the service, there was a young lady, a young lady now that got up and she was going to sing a song. And... Um, I was like, oh, wow, man, that's the little girl I used to pick up uh, with, the, with the church bus and bring her in for Sunday school, you know? And now she's grown up, 
and she was going to sing a song. And so I was like, wow, this is, this is great. She's still here and, and everything else. So she got up, and the track started to play. She was singing to a track. The track started to play, and, and I was like, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And it was a Michael Jackson song. Now, she sang it quite well. She did. She sang it quite well. She got through all the words and everything. And when we got to the end, everybody clap. I did, she did it sincerely well. But it wasn't about God. So sometimes we can substitute the worship of God with the worship of doing things well or sincerely. We have to watch it because you walk into false worship at that point. No, we sincerely worship our God and Him only. So let me close with, uh, you know, I go to gotquestions.org. It's a great website to go to, um, to, to if you got a question about the Bible, takes you to the scriptures. Here was a quote out of there. True worship is not confined to what we do in church or open praise. Although these things are good, and we are told in the Bible to do them. So we are told to gather like we have this morning. And we are told to lift our voices up in praise. We are. True worship is acknowledgement of God and all his power and glory in everything we do. Everything that we do. So think of worship as, a, as an umbrella over you. And under that umbrella is all the aspects of your life. So there's your family. There's your spouse. There's your work. There's your kids. There's your school, there's your hobbies, there's your, all the avenues of your life are all under this umbrella of worship. And true worship is to acknowledge God in all of those areas. The highest form of praise and worship is obedience to him and his word. It's not that we do a fast song and a slow song and we have a certain feeling or anything. No, our, our true worship of him is when we obey him and his word. To do this, we must know God. We cannot be ignorant of him. Paul is in Athens. He's on Mars Hill. He's speaking to the, uh, the scholars there. And he says, I've went around your city. You've got all these idols. You're very religious people. He says, but I came across this idol that says to the unknown God. He says, I'm here to tell you who that one is. Because I don't want you to be ignorant about the unknown God. I want you to know him. I want you to know him. Lastly, worship is to glorify God and exalt God, to show your loyalty and admiration to our Father. That's what worship is. When does that happen? It happens 24-7. When does that happen? 365 days a year. And if there was anything out of the, the end of this month of looking at worship, I would hope that you would realize that it is it is not about just this time that we have together or songs that we sing. No, worship leaves the building in a few, in, in about a half hour, maybe an hour. Spend some time with coffee and cookies and, and sign up for Come For More. But worship leaves the building because worship is done by you. God is within you. And you take worship wherever you go. And so I do want to challenge you to think of that umbrella and think of every aspect of your life and say, how do I worship God in this aspect of my life? How do I worship God in this aspect of my life? 
How do I worship God in this aspect of my life? I just drove almost 4,000 miles this last week. How do I worship God in this aspect of my life? Because I'm supposed to worship him everywhere. And so I pray this morning that our, our minds, our hearts have realized that worship is much more than a place. Worship is more about a whom, our God, and the, and the salvation that has come from the Jews, Jesus. And it's how we do it. We do it because we have a relationship with him. And we do it because of the truth that he has given to us in his word through Jesus Christ. That is true worship. And God is seeking true worshipers. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song? One thing I'm so thankful for is that when you leave this building, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, worship has left the building. And worship doesn't really even happen here until you walk back through the doors again. And so we thus take the worship of our God with us wherever we go. Amen. Amen. Have a great time. Coffee cookies, sign up for a come for more. <laughs>